0: I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up.
1: It's so much easier to be straight up with a customer if you're being straight up with each other. And so working through a process where the same process of asking who do we want to be to the world is who do we want to be with each other? That was, I think, the starting point of the proposition. Sort of radically simple, in a way.
0: This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Welcome to the fifth season of Scaling Up. In this series, expect a mix of incredible Australian growth stories, some of the earlier stages of their scaling-up journey, as well as some of Australia's largest listed businesses. Regardless of scale or business model, there are always some common scaling pain points, and we try to uncover how these leaders have overcome them. We also have another little mini-series, this time lasering in on the role of the Chief People Officer and what scaling great cultures can look like. To kick off the series, though, we have back-to-back episodes featuring two of Australia's brightest venture-backed consumer finance companies. By releasing them side-by-side, I thought it'd be easier for listeners to compare and contrast the lessons in similar business models. The first of these is Athena Home Loans, and the founders Nathan and Michael join us on this first episode. Founded in 2017 and launched two years later, Athena has already funded over $3.5 billion of home loans in Australia on the simple premise of allowing for fast, simple, transparent and cost-effective digital loans. As you can imagine, the home loan market in Australia is massive, and crucially, it's controlled by the four legacy banks. But they are certainly having some of their lunch eaten by the non-bank lenders, of which Athena is right at the top of the list. Crucially, to enable Athena to scale rapidly in a highly regulated environment, Nathan and Michael from day one realised that talent was the most important element to their success, and they built a crack team of leaders around them who could move from start-up and roll up their sleeves right through the scale-up journey. This conversation covers a heap of ground, from scaling a consumer brand to finding competitive advantages in their cost of capital on the lending side of the business, as well as some hot topics around remote versus in-office work as we come out of COVID lockdowns. These two are high-functioning and thoughtful in everything they do. And this translates, I think, into some wonderful insights for founders, management teams, and the casual listener alike. Aside from this podcast here at TDM, we are trying to create a whole range of blogs and thought pieces to help people navigate both their investing and also leadership or management journey. We recently produced a piece on why we think sustainability is eating the world. As a bit of a tip of the cap to one of our portfolio companies, Allbirds, that recently got to ring the bell on the NASDAQ. You can find all our content across our websites and social platforms, and you can always find me and get in touch on Twitter, at Eddie Cowan. Nathan and Michael, absolute pleasure to have you on Scaling Up. I'm lucky enough to spend some time with people in the venture capital world, and I always ask the first question, who are the highest functioning founders in your portfolio in the ecosystem? And without a doubt, they always come back that it's you two. So that's a high bar to to set for today. So hopefully we can unveil some nuggets of gold. I want to start way back in 2017. You two were sitting in a coffee shop at the bottom of the NAB building in Melbourne, probably amongst some people in some grey turtlenecks, no doubt. If I was a fly on the wall in that coffee shop, what would I have heard? So it was actually one of those very
1: energised conversations, almost cliched scribbling on napkins. Um, Mike and I had worked together for many years. We sort of uh, knew each other really well. We'd seen each other going through sort of good times and bad. So sort of coming in with a high trust environment. And I think it really came back down to a conversation about the flow of money and how markets around the world, non-banks end up being a very large part of the overall you know, home loans market in Australia is very dominated, 93% by large banks. And I think we sort of came back to that idea around how you can actually design a very different funding model. And that then flowed through into insights around how we could do things very differently for consumers, very differently from technology as well. So in some ways, I think we'd be uh, probably a little bit red-faced around the naivete of some of the things that we talked about there, like the learning curve um, over the last couple of years has been incredible. But maybe those core insights around You can cut the spread between what you're paying an underlying funder and what a mortgage broker does if you actually simplify that value chain, take out cost capital complexity. You can actually, if you've got that flexibility, design things for a consumer that are very different and then you can do so with a really efficient funding model. And so, you know, every detail below those core insights, totally different. I don't know, Mike, what do you reckon that that was sort of, a, that was, the core was there from day one?
2: That was exactly right. And I, I think, Nathan, you had the idea, and you Nathan's a very creative and, and visionary person, and, and you brought that insight as to, really, it's a macro observation that people close to the nuts and bolts of a given mortgage process wouldn't necessarily lift their heads above and sort of make that observation. And Nathan had done so from outside of the mortgage world, because you were you'd started and you were running Nab Trade at the time. I was on the deposit side. But I do remember, you know, brainstorming that and saying, Nathan, I would quit tomorrow to do this business with you. I remember saying that. So there was a there was a lot
0: of excitement from the get-go. And of course it wasn't your first rodeo as founders while being inside NAB started the Nab trade from I don't know, zero to forty billion dollar platform. It was a big business for the bank. And Michael, of course, an executive, but had previously founded iSelect. So What was the vision as to what you wanted to build and how you wanted to build it? Having been through the process before, as you say, there have been some great learnings and we'll we'll dig into those, but were there any key messages around what the vision was at that point in time?
1: Well, Mike had done sort of a venture funded startup before. Mine was corporate funded, so within a portfolio and always sort of felt like living life with a Nike sneaker on one foot and a gumboot on the other. You know, there's a lot of things in a corporate venturing context that are very similar but some things that are so radically different from doing something outside a corporate. And so clearly starting from, you know, blank sheet of paper, assembling teams, designing technology, user-centric design processes, regular, like there's lots of the actually execution that that was a really great practice run. But of course, the conversations around funding, the staging of investments, the the risk profile of the, the team you bring aboard, completely different. So I think what it was useful for, though, was actually looking to say, how can you design something really different in a regulated category? So understand that both transform, but do so in a way where you're very cognizant of a lot of constraints and maybe a model where, online trading was actually probably a a digital business before it was even called digital. So you'd actually seen the the dynamics play out versus a market like mortgages much, much earlier in that journey. So to some extent, asking questions of what could be, it helps you frame some some questions.
2: Yeah, and and I think the decision making in a large corporate is really interesting. It's very difficult to execute a strategy because of so many people that then have to agree on it. and then with the amount of turnover in management, that strategy gets discarded after one year. So we saw pockets of really powerful strategy. NAB, in, in for example, in the mortgage space in 2010. But the ability to have end-to-end control, make a decision and stick with it for a long-term strategy, that's the appeal for me and not have it kiboshed by a change in CEO or,
0: you know, that, that, that was really the appeal of building something. You talk about trying to put two Nike running shoes on. And part of this to me, (laughs) you're wearing them today, there they are. Uh, Part of this is I've heard you say before, you were very focused on turning the process upside down. Many businesses go for money first, they get well funded, they have a business, and then they try and attract the talent. And Michael just touched on something there. In fact, you didn't want your strategy to be inhibited by people. And from day one, you were very focused on talent first.
1: Yeah, so and, and so to some extent being in a scale up now, we're really seeing the benefits of maybe where we started where, you know, there is almost a build from bottom up where you maybe get founders who are trying to do everything for themselves, they're almost hiring the minimum required to scale and then they add layers of management as, as the complexity and scale of the business grows we very much took the opposite approach of what's the team that we wanted to have in place when we were a multi-billion dollar business. And you know, in a market like mortgages, there is some complexity, right? You need absolute excellence around marketing, but also treasury and risk operations. So there's quite a lot of verticals that need to sort of really work well together. And so that was, I think, the real challenge for picking people who both could be that layer of leader, but at the same time, you know, When there's five of you around a rickety table, you've just got to be willing to hold a mop, right? You've got to actually be the people who can roll up sleeves and get stuff done. I think the benefit of being in a mode where, having worked in you know, large financial institutions for you know a decade on, on both of us, you kind of knew there was really some great talent that, that could have been much better deployed, long-term people playing a long-term game for long-term outcomes. And so bringing those in and then building that vision of how do we actually get the first week, the first sprint, the first code written, all those components – but do so with a very clear vision of just what this game is going to look like over a series of stages rather than having to replace that level of management over time. So we proudly brought that team into the room. That was sort of, I think, probably the calling card from the beginning to say this is the group that can run you know, a major mortgage business. Here's what it would look like, being able to talk about the talent in each of those verticals, and it's actually the same team around the table today. So to some extent we've been very fortunate, just that the group of people, and it's been a huge part of both the success and the fun of what we've been doing
0: no doubt it's a huge foundational stone to put in place at the very start and when we talk about scaling people and culture which we're going to carve out you know some time for at the end of this podcast we'll come back to it for sure just to, to really dig into the nuts and bolts let's get into the business model and maybe the market to start with massive opportunity everyone in Australia knows how big the home loan business is Your legacy competitors, the four large banks, as you say, control the market, and yet slow-moving, huge return on invested capital in, in the mortgage market for them. It's their bread and butter. What was your core insight as to what you could provide the customer as a proposition?
1: Yeah, it's probably worth just for those who aren't familiar with this market, just giving a, a very brief view. So, you know, Australia is a fairly small economy globally, but actually there are markets like mortgages. That's $1.9 trillion of assets. It's, it's actually a very large market, even focusing domestically. Quite different than other offshore markets. So take the US, non-banks actually are more than half mortgage originations. You've got players like Rocket Mortgage and Better and others, so, you know, ending up very large scale. 93% of Australian home loans are written by banks and that's very concentrated in a small number of very large legacy players. And so what that translates into is disruption around technology Disruption around trust, disruption around funding models. And so the obvious advantages that a bank used to have of, you know, we've got our own proprietary, you know, large data centres, systems, all those other components, clearly an opportunity to to just use modern cloud-based solutions. So to some extent, nothing novel other than the fact it hasn't been applied into our segment about how you actually can design and manage software very differently and therefore bring a reg tech mindset to what is still a fairly complicated sort of value chain. A disruption around trust, these are home loan customers are some of the unhappiest customers in retail banking. NPS scores typically negative, so large, large pools of detractors. And banks have actually gone for short-term productivity at the expense of their customers. So things like charging, on average, the customers who've been loyal half a percent more than what their new customers look like, so what's called the loyalty penalty. And that translates into tens of thousands of dollars of interest over a life of the loan. So really an opportunity to come back in and not just use better technology, better systems, more efficiency, but actually really challenge some of the assumptions about some of those industry conventions and do things very differently. And then I think lastly, banks are very complex machines to optimise taking small ticket deposits and translating them into long-term lending. But of course, there are very large funding pools outside deposits that aren't you know, we can go and, and access with a much simpler funding model. So really, when you think about the, the changes on technology and, and the fact that, you know, the world is changing outside banks so much faster, unmet needs of very large numbers of customers and the ability to do so very cost efficiently, we think that there's a big opportunity out there. And it really is a very similar model in some ways that say Rocket in the US or many other players. How do we bring that to a $1.9 trillion local market?
2: And it's interesting The innovation doesn't have to be technology. When you think about the origination process for mortgages, obviously very slow and cumbersome and clunky for a bank, but this is a 25-year product. So customers have gone through that. Um, But really turning the strength of the banks, which is their huge balance sheets and their huge back-book profits of their bake off mortgages, turning that into a weakness by saying, well, actually, we're going to come with a blank sheet approach that says you will not pay more as an existing customer than a brand new customer to the organisation. It's not a technological um, innovation, but it's
0: probably the most innovative thing we've done from an offering point of view. It seems to me, and having talked to you before, this question of price and convenience keeps coming to the top of mind and this challenger brand around, we're digital first, there's a clear counter position to the banks, but we're going to create trust through transparency and everything we do is going to be underpinned by that right through to the organisational culture. How have you thought about really building this brand and trying to scale the acquisition cost of the consumer?
1: Yeah, so the core insight, savings, service, simple, right? That's that's easy. But I think what was fascinating is really going through a, a really rigorous sort of process of just understanding how do you build the emotional connection and, and tell the stories around that. And so it's actually, I think, some of the more exciting days we've ever had. was sitting behind one-way mirrors. You're watching some of the consumer testing. And really, you could come in with a very simple, let's just bash the banks and say they're ripping you off or let's just give a very, this is the dollar savings. But when we started to translate that into meaning this is actually helping you pay down your home loan faster. This is the outcome you can achieve of being debt free. And so consumers who, when they first got into the property market, were really excited and felt proud. Wow, this is a big deal to buy a house. After a couple of years, just that feeling of this is something I'm never gonna get rid of. I mean, people are literally talking about it as like, it's a face tattoo that I got when I was younger and I'm gonna live with it for the rest of my life, right? And so that, I think once you've actually built out, not just something that proposition wise meets a need, like you're paying too much, it's easy to switch, but actually turn that into a really clear emotional driver of we're on a mission to help you pay down your home loan faster. All of a sudden that creates real opportunity to go out and do things differently. So for example, we've gone out and said, look, you know, free yourself from mortgage bondage, wrapped buses in leather and driven them around, you know, some of the capital cities here in Australia, really telling this story around you can do things differently. So I think Creating that emotional connection um, with the consumer and that vision to say, wow, I can take a 30-year loan and make that 25 years. Or what would that five years of my life now look like? That's an area where there's the level of, of connection, you know, goes beyond just the dollars and cents of that's, you know, you know, $50 a month in my pocket. It becomes, I think, incredibly motivating. And so it's one of the things we're really excited about is not just having a proposition that meets a need, but don't be boring about the way you communicate that. That's a big part of the efficiency of, of the overall marketing spend is how do you actually capture attention very efficiently in terms of the storytelling
0: around the product itself. Sounds like you've read my notes. I was going to talk about you pushing the boundaries on brand, but that's, that's a, a fantastic call out. What would be to your mind the biggest difficulty on the, on the consumer side of the business that you've faced that has been unexpected in terms of scaling your business?
1: I'd say we should call out and recognise just what an amazing job our Chief Marketing Officer, Natalie Dinsdale, has done. The team that's been assembled, I think there is clearly the art of actually creating cut through in terms of all of your performance marketing. But at the same time, the science behind how do we make sure every step on that journey is, you know, you're getting incredible cost efficiency. So we're in a mode today where 70% of home loans are sold via mortgage broker. It's roughly 24 months to recycle that cost of customer acquisition when you're selling through a broker channel. It's sort of a large scale, but, you know, there's, there's real cost. we look at to take that 24 months and bring that down to four to six months, right? So the efficiency that you can get in terms of how you're recycling the acquisition costs. And clearly, if you're recycling in four to six months for an asset that's worth um, five, seven plus years, then all of a sudden that becomes a very interesting economic model. And so I think it is that combination of that real performance focus, but at the same time, then the art that's coming through. So I think that's the big component. And then I think the other part about that is then the proposition that sits behind that. So actually then as you're building out, how do you make sure that you've authentically got a very strong story? The things that really got you product market fit on day one, you're actually continuing to to extend those out. So moving from a proposition around refinance, so customers who already have a mortgage moving to a cheaper mortgage. We moved just six months after we went live to supporting new home purchase. Uh, we've done a bunch of extensions over the last couple of years since then. So most recently, launch of our fixed rate product. And then a couple of really big ones coming at the back end of this year with offset accounts and you know real-time payments.
2: Yeah. I mean, starting without a brand, Well, without a known brand in a direct-to-consumer business, when you don't have a dedicated sales force out there selling your product, that's hard, right? And uh, there's not a lot of shortcuts. We did have a little bit of luck in in our first year in that we had some rate changes. We were able to sort of get some breasts off the back of it and and all the rest. But that And the treasurer, of course. The treasurer called us out on TV and radio several times. So we, we had those as tailwinds, but building a brand from scratch is a, a multi-year journey and we feel like we've done a, a really good job but still probably 70% of Australians you know haven't heard of us so there's still a huge amount of upside to to where we're going
0: with this huge runway ahead and behind this marketing machine though is is some real process power you know, people joke there's plenty of fintechs but lots of fin and not much tech in your case there is end-to-end platform that you have built where other challenger brands, to my mind, have just sort of created this marketing engine and outsourced a lot of this technology. What is this process power enabling you to do, not just now, but what does Act 2 look like with the ability to scale a whole range of different products?
1: So I think it's interesting when you think about a lot of fintechs that are doing maybe shorter term, unsecured consumer lending, business lending, very high margin, very forgiving for loss rates. When you're lending you know half a million dollars over 30 years, you're looking to do that at very thin margins, you've got to really manage that credit process, making sure that this is a responsible lend for the consumer with a much greater degree of rigour, right? So the sort of the loss rates we're aiming for is very, very low. And the key challenge then is saying, well, how do you remove friction from the process while at the same time writing incredible quality in terms of the loans that you're writing? And so, you know, ultimately, that's a process where, you know, legacy, get a broker to help you fill out a bunch of really complicated paper-based forms, hand that in. It can be weeks until someone even picks it up, right? So, the typical turnaround time to get an unconditionally approved in Australia right now would be approaching a month, right? Um, Versus a model where you can go fill that in all online, you can aggregate data, click Submit. And then within the next 30 seconds, there's over a hundred different business rules that are being run across those loans. We're going out automatically and extracting data from a whole bunch of other services. You're getting feedback, conditional approval, you know, within 60 seconds, you haven't even left that episode. You've already got the vision to say, this is now what comes next. What's quite exciting is if it doesn't fit the loan for us, what we'll also do is then run that through to say, now we'll also find a loan for you. So we're targeting really prime loans. So an 80% LBR, great credit record. There's lots of people who don't, today fit that criteria but let's make sure that we're actually helping find a great loan for those customers as well so I think a real opportunity to think what are all the steps for understanding great credit the math behind that and then where there is the complexities where's the you know the exception processing required how do you make sure you're able to have teams step through each of those steps so we can make it very simple in terms of digital process but under the hood there's always people you know reviewing each file making sure this is a great loan I think probably, Mike, it'd be great to sort of talk about what that translated into over the last couple of years in terms of the quality able to come through and and therefore the funding we're able to get right through COVID.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, our vision has been exactly as you observed there, which is that to control the end to end value chain all the way from acquisition through origination, servicing, and then our own funding program will give us the ability to scale this out more effectively. And so uh, just on the back end there, as Nathan said, I mean, through COVID, we had a really low uh, amount of arrears. We We had very good quality coming through. I think we had we peaked at around about 0.2% of a whole book on, on some sort of form of payment um, deferral versus the banks were at 10%. So it was just a more than an order of magnitude better in terms of performance. And that did allow us to you know enjoy strong support from funders throughout what was a pretty tumultuous um, period there. So the, the vision of owning the end-to-end, and as Nathan sort of began with, that connecting wholesale money to retail borrowers and having every step in between allows you to not only scale out on the borrower side, but then develop a really flexible funding program at the back end and deal to different um, appetites uh, in the stack i mean the diversity of our funding program now is one of our real strengths it's a real pillar for our growth going forward yeah
0: you're listening to scaling up with ed cowan a podcast brought to you by tdm growth partners visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary follow us on twitter at tdm underscore growth there has to be some secret sauce and I think you've just called it out around this funding model to be funding over 3 billion of, of home loans. 3.6, lo- 3. yeah. 3.6, yeah. 3. you're growing so quickly, my numbers are, are old, but 3.6 billion of home loans. I think the vision initially was there's a better way to fund and that was direct where there are deep pools of capital in Australia away from this warehousing and securitization piece. How is this playing out? and And do you think the data and the transparency as to what you're capturing can move you to a greater and more efficient funding model?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think right from the start, the strategy was not to be a bank. So we very deliberately chose to be a non-bank, uh, which means we can't gather consumer deposits. So we were about collecting wholesale funds and delivering those to retail borrowers. The vision there was to be very capital efficient in the way we grow. And that's really important from an equity um, point of view, because if you think about a bank model, and if you do the back of the envelope, for every billion dollars, if we were a bank, we would probably have to find 50 million of equity capital. As Nathan said, we're growing to the billions, So that would just be a huge equity raise just to support the mortgage, let alone the tech bill and everything else, just to support the mortgage book. So that's a real strength of ours, where we started. We started with the very basic warehousing arrangements with one counterparty. We've grown that out to multiple wholesale banks, including international wholesale banks, We've also done really innovative whole of loan transactions. So Newcastle Permanent was the one we announced last September and then Cerberus Bluestone earlier this year. Those are capital free altogether. So we shift the loans off the balance sheet altogether, even though from a customer point of view, nothing's changed. So if you, if you put all that together, the amount of capital that we have tied up in the business has dropped precipitously since launch. And we see a vision of that moving down to you know a 10th what we would need if we were
1: an ADI, for example. And maybe at its heart there, we are a double-sided business. So we've got to think technology design thinking to meet the needs of different segments of borrowers. But underlying what Michael just described is this idea to say you need to bring that same design thinking on the funder side. And it, the challenge with things like the traditional securitization markets is they actually perform well. The challenge is typically platforms are not funding aware. And so you end up with Excel spreadsheets and access databases sort of meeting those needs. It means that the underlying funders don't actually have great transparency, real-time loan level transparency to what's going on. And the moments when people aren't comfortable and relying on a ratings agency saying, this is sweet, this is not, you know, things like the GFC, they're the moments when actually having, this is exactly what this loan portfolio looks like today. This This is the loans in your portfolio right now, here's what that looks like. And so being able to be in a position where during the middle of COVID, where I would actually say not just in aggregate we're up to, but this is what your portfolio looks like. It's these three lines and then you know here's what the LVR looks like. You're in a position where transparency means they can make decisions and, and assess in a very different risk profile. And so ultimately getting to better cost of funding translates into us being able to provide better value back to the borrower side and a real virtual cycle of attracting better quality um, borrowers into the mix. That's
2: right. And we've got, I mean, we would have at least 15 different funding partners and often they have very different needs. Newcastle Permanent's an APRA regulated entity. They have to report through to APRA. We have to report as if we were an APRA entity ourselves and we're able to do that. So it's a great platform for growth.
0: It seems a very clear value proposition to these capital providers. Again, the same question I asked on the consumer side, what has shocked you in terms of scaling this funding piece as to what you know, both previous NAB executives, you knew this business inside out. Has anything caught you off guard in regards to trying to scale the funding side of the business?
2: Getting on the first rung was probably harder than we thought. You know, I think once we had um, $200, 400000000 million worth of funding there, just given the quality of what we've written, we've been able to successfully scale that out without too many hitches but we probably underestimated how hard it would be to to lock away the first 1 or 200 million it's a real chicken and egg there where the equity guys want to see that you're funded the funding guys want to see equity capital so how do you break that and we had some really good partners to help us navigate that back at the end of 2018 start of 2019 when we launched but ever since then i think it's actually been really quite smooth
1: yeah absolutely so i think we were asking the question of how do we scale funding before we have the track record for ratings and I think we assumed that was a three-year problem. It, as Michael said, that was really more, crossing the chasm was more of a six-month problem, which then could really accelerate. And even things like COVID really just didn't interrupt that progress. So I think when you show that you can actually deliver high-quality borrowers with high-quality data, that matching of funding to consumers becomes you know, really quite a simple problem.
2: And mortgages are very big tickets. You know, think of the average mortgage is 500000 If you want to write 1,000 mortgages, you need $500 million. So it's, it's just uh, the amount of money you need just to get to a reasonably small scale in mortgages is a lot and that's what makes that getting on that first rung uh, a
0: challenge. Fascinating insight. Let's shift gears to something that I know you're very passionate about. Athena is what I would call a culture-first business. From day one, you had the values laid out, the vision for what you wanted the culture to look and feel like. Can you give some insight as to why that was so important to you?
1: when you're in a very large corporate with inflexible technology, the business almost assumes that tech is the big handbrake on getting things done. When you get to the model of just the efficiency where, you know, great engineers, great underlying components, actually it's the quality of decision-making, the pace that things can get worked through, ends up being by far the bigger issue. Technology is not the constraint. And so I think we came in with this idea to say, the proposition that we want to deliver to customers and who we wanna be with each other. So sort of the, the marketing positioning and then our values and behaviors, we didn't think they should be different things. So when you sort of come in with this idea that we wanna be an organization that's being radically, you know, we just wanna be straight up with customers, we wanna be able to move at speed, we wanna be able to break what's broken, this idea of break with convention, all of those components, if you're gonna authentically deliver them, you have to sort of ask the question of what are the values and behaviors that then support those components, right? And so it's so much easier to be straight up with a customer if you're being straight up with each other. And so working through a process where the same same process of asking who do we want to be to the world is who do we want to be with each other, that was, I think, the starting point of the proposition, sort of radically simple um, in a way. It is fascinating, though, that those conversations when you're you know, a team of a dozen people, which is much more well, just, you know, how do we play nicely with each other? suddenly becomes so different when you start to get to scale. And this probably becomes one of those ones for that constant, you know, pruning and focus. Things that you need to let go of in terms of that value proposition as you scale versus things that you need to really focus in and and continue to invest in in culture. But overall, I think that key point around passion for change, you know, how do we lead with heart? And then how do we actually bring a real action bias, make every day count and we've got our sort of set of you know stories behind each of those. We think we've actually, over the last eight months of COVID, in a remote world, the payoff of actually really having thought that through and having a, a team and an infrastructure that really believes deeply in what we're trying to achieve, that mission and the how behind that. I think that's meant that even though you know, probably 40% of the teams actually joined us during remote world that there's a very clear vision about what we're looking to be that I think that's been sort of a real cultural balance sheet that we've been able to draw on over the course of the, the COVID world.
2: Yeah and, and full credit to you Nathan and your leadership because at the very beginning when we were literally only the half of the LT so in, in the first week or two of the business we were up there in Carrington Street we did sessions on culture and what we wanted it to look like and what we valued and what we wanted that to to be and now of course that morphed and changed over time but the fact that amongst everything you needed to do to start a business as ambitious as this that we set aside time in those first couple of weeks to, to have that conversation I think speaks to the importance that we all felt that that deserved and, and you led that so I think having that really early conversation was really important.
1: And I think maybe the place where that probably plays out the most is actually the way functions work together. I think it's really possible with the right leaders to have amazing functions you know great engineers or a great product and, and we do have those things right but um in some ways the magic is, is actually how do those teams work together and the starting with the why not the what ends up being that mode to say when some of these are harder questions, right, how do we do X, what does that look like, who are we, what does it mean, what's the choice that we make really in the detail right now but without having to do a round trip up to any level of seniority, that's I think when the payoff comes from actually having you know having made some of those investments up front. So we have actually did a refresh of those last year and you know, some slight evolution, simplification. So there's sort of a lot of ongoing focus of saying the decisions we made in that sort of first week and first year, we got some things right, but giving ourselves the permission to change our mind on every dimension that, that we like. In the end, I think it is a big part of how we attract and how we retain just really wonderful talent. How do we get people working together without the elbows in a very different mindset? And a lot of these are people who've come from large organisations, right? So this is not finding this magic talent pool that's never lived and worked in some of these organisations. It's how do we create these incredibly talented, smart, hardworking people that probably never had the benefit of fully leveraging what they could do to operate in a very different world and a different way together. And so I think that's what's sort of come out of that. And I think we still get comments from people as they, as they join of just what that feels like. And you know, as we move back into a sort of being all co-located and, and being together, I think that's just really going to come together even, even more.
0: I love the concept of a cultural balance sheet. A bit of an odd question, but what have been the big debits and credits that have been inputted into that balance sheet as you've scaled? I'm sure they've changed over time, but what have been the key kind of moments in the scaling journey?
1: Maybe the question when you sit down with a bunch of founders and have a conversation about what was the hardest moment of a scale-up journey? And- the number of versions of a story that someone describes of being chased into the bathroom of you need to make a decision on ABC because they'd scaled but actually decision-making and, and authority was still so centralised back into a really a great founder. And I think we've always taken that mode of saying how do we get the authority to make decisions and the people have got the information that people make decisions being much tighter, right? And so coming back to that point about the culture balance sheet and the debits and credits, it is starting to say, where are the places where we've done a good job about getting people able to make decisions with confidence with the full context of why, right? It's not just the technical question, but actually sometimes they're quite big, big conversations. Where I'd say we've probably learned is the way you actually set up that business model can make a big difference, right? So we've, for example, the design of how our squads work, we've evolved that many times along the journey. When we started out with squads that were very centred around more technology assets, we had a Salesforce squad, for example, right? And of course that meant that it was very hard to get alignment because they were involved in almost every problem, right? We're now in a mode we're having scaled up now from three up to eight squads, very much focused of different stages of the customer's life cycle from, you know, first engagement and apply, originate, Um, et cetera, and it does allow you to get teams focused around really specific OKRs and problems. But it also means some of those cultural questions really come to the fore. What does great look like from design? How do I make sure I'm using the next two-week sprint, you know, really with the right way? You're in a position where you can really delegate a lot of authority down, not just into a leadership team level, but further more deeply down into the organization. Because that big challenge is always, how do you move from, you know, maybe some of the traditional models where founders are involved in every decision, to a scale organisation where you can be comfortable that we are living and breathing an Athena that the goddess would be proud of, where it's actually, you know, in many cases, it's people who've arrived and working remotely through COVID still making choices that we would be really comfortable along the way. And so that's ultimately the the test of is it working or not working is ultimately what do we end up doing and what are the choices that we feel you've delegated down and you're actually doing the right things along the way.
2: And I think in terms of you know, I'm really excited getting back to a physical co-location with our new office this week because I, I do think that the informal structures and the corridor conversations do contribute a lot to that cultural balance sheet. I, I would say, if anything, we've drawn down a bit over that in the last six months and you, know, you and I will have a phone conversation, we'll set something in motion and it won't be as easy to cascade and communicate that effectively. So if, if there are any points of debit to the balance sheet, I think they're being driven somewhat by you know covid and and
0: lack of co-location and so so I'm really excited that we're back together now. Let's talk about that. As you mentioned, new office. I'm very interested and it's such a hot topic at the moment. This remote versus in office, what's the best balance? How can we maximize efficiency? How can we keep our employees happy if they're enjoying remote? And how can we make sure there's a redesign of of not only how we're operating, but how our physical spaces look as well. Maybe can you just give some insight into the conversations internally as to how you are thinking about dealing with it?
1: Yeah, well, I remember back in sort of March 2020 when we were sort of in the office just basically announcing the team Friday showcase that we're not coming in on Monday, right? And this was actually before the government called it. We said, no, we're going to move to remote just given where things were up to. And, you know, just the way that all laid out where we'd gone through and tested function by function to say, look, you know, we know it's cloud-based. In theory, everything's doable remote, but where in the detail was there a signature required to authorise a payment or some other component, which how do we eliminate all of those? And so probably the first level of just how well things can work remotely, right? I mean, you can deliver great service to customers. You can acquire and onboard new teams. You can run all your innovation squads, you know, with some real productivity. So we had a lot of conversations about what does that mean, right? Do we actually embrace remote? And we know there's sort of a lot of organisations have gone remote first. And in the end, we've come back to say, of course, post-COVID, there's always going to be a lot more flexibility. There will always be people making choices but we've almost gone through function by function to say this is actually how we want the business to run and recommitted to this idea around collaboration and collocation as being the core. We've got a, most of the team operating from a, from a single location here in Sydney. There's functions like our customer service that we actually want to pretty close get to that being five days a week, right? So yes, a team leader can listen to calls and give QA and all those other components remotely, but gee, it's better to have someone being able to walk up and down a team in real time and give that feedback. There's other functions where actually can work really quite well. Um, and so there's just some, probably some engagement moments. But you know, if you're, if you're talking about some of the operation functions, then there are some things that can be done through a more remote world. But probably what we ended up doing was designing some real estate to be quite different right really designing for collaboration at the heart of what we're doing so we got fortunately very very close to renting out some new office space we we're already overstacked back in march michael fortunately was able to cancel that at the sort of handbrake turn um just before we we made our payment the office we've now designed is completely different than where we where our headspace was 18 months ago and so really picking an area where you end up with you know quite high density in terms of the working spaces you know the individual desks but allocating a very large part of this to collaboration zones with the whiteboards and all those other components. Really with that idea to say, you could work at your desk, but for the days you're doing individual work, home is fine for that too. But how do we get to the point, to Michael's point earlier, that we really do think that there's moments where the magic happens just so much better when you actually can be sitting there in real time and having a conversation. And so continue to use, you know, Miro and all the other great tools in remote. We've been really pleased with that. But at its heart, we think we can actually design better experiences, keep the easy things easy, deal with the hard problems well, where you've actually got teams spending time together, looking each other in the eye and actually getting a, a, a different level of conversation than what's always as possible in a purely remote Zoom-based world.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think there's, you know, in any work environment, you've got formal and informal structures. The formal meetings and processes can run reasonably efficiently over Zoom, although some of the collaboration pieces, some of those formal pieces that you're much better off in in co-location, but it's all greased by the informal get-togethers, the cup of coffee where we can just sort of, uh, or you pass someone in the corridor and you can just square off with a misunderstanding that may have happened in a meeting. There's a fair amount of momentum after you've built that that collaborative culture and you can trade off that momentum for, for months and months But over time, you know, that's going to erode, particularly as you have new starters who've come in and never met anyone. And so our view is that a business can't just operate off a set of formal Zoom uh, sessions, that you need the informality as well with that. And so, yeah, we're pretty strong in that
0: philosophy. One asset on your cultural balance sheet that you invested in early, to my mind, is is a CPO, that being a chief people officer, not product officer. What role has that person played in this scaling of the culture of the organisation and how important has that person been?
2: (laughs) She's amazing,
0: (laughs) Liana. So um, it's really interesting because
2: we had a lot of conversations at the very beginning about our experience of HR in a large organisation. And of course, there's lots of really great individuals there but we had um, I I would say poor experience there and we almost were in a mode of you know scar tissue yeah scar tissue well do we need HR and of course we did need HR but we just we didn't need that version of it and and Liana actually comes from, not from an HR background per se, but actually she's a delivery. She's a, a person who actually intimately understands the challenges of actually getting things done in a business. And to be able to bring that lens through to the people side, she has enormous respect from from everyone in the team. She plays a very active role in shaping the culture but at a very individual level but Liana actually wears a lot of hats in our business she's our company secretary and she's just managed the whole office migration so she's probably one of the most pivotal people um that we have in the in the in the business today
1: hell yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> in terms of that role being deeply strategic as you called out many people sort of have the view of of HR as onboarding and hiring or exit interviews but in fact Refocusing that role to being a cultural beacon and being deeply strategic into the scaling fabric of of what Athena needs to become was that a conversation that you had as founders?
1: Well, I think that probably comes back to what Michael was sort of saying that there are a lot of important just compliancy type things you need to do to meet your people obligations, and it's easy for HR to almost be dominated by that component as opposed to that's an infrastructure, but the actual layer of How do you make sure that your people leaders are armed with that ability to actually deliver a great experience to customers, that you've got an employee value proposition where if you've got great talent doing great things, and we brag shamelessly across all of our areas, these are people who are always going to get phone calls and have many, many options, you know, they could move in an instant. So having that point to say people are confident that what they're actually achieving as part of Athena as a team, the experience they have of day-to-day, the fun, the spark the vision being part of building something really exciting, there's actually a lot of really strategic conversations to wrap into saying, well, how do you bottle and make that experience something that can work not only in a small team, but as you as you get to larger groups, as you have to do things remotely. And so, you know, Liana and a very small team do an incredible job of, of supporting that and then working with the with the people leaders around the organisation.
0: One last people and culture question. You were so deliberate from day one, so thoughtful around this cultural architecture that you've created, again, the same question I've asked for the other aspects of the business, what has caught you off guard or what has been the biggest scaling challenge that you probably didn't think of day one that has popped up since?
1: I think it's interesting that the investment to get the right next layer, it's quite deliberate when things scale out. So the complexity is you almost need an additional layer of just that change process being around that. And so we're in a beautiful position now where we not only have the eight squads in place, but we've actually gone and got the right product leaders in each of those areas. So, um, again, our Chief Product Officer, Marahone, is an incredible leader, was from before day one. She, The way she's run that's been incredible. But as she's now got that additional layer, what we can actually do to delegate authority down into teams because we have that infrastructure is we feel that what we've actually achieved over the last six months is probably double what we achieved in terms of throughput over the six months before that. And so I think it's probably just those scale moments when all of a sudden you really are trying to move authority information decision-making down a layer because... The scale and complexity of the business has grown they're quite interesting moments where incredibly talented individuals but if you're trying to scale out then that the build out of that infrastructure is something that needs to be very deliberate and so that has worked incredibly well but it's probably only after the effect i have realized how important that was and the job that in product and pete in, in technology and it like they've done an incredible job of bringing in a new a new generation of leadership into the organization i think we are seeing the benefits of that and, and probably just then almost thinking through, wow, that was probably a much more momentous moment than probably I had. I should have thought that through in advance a little bit more.
2: Yeah, it's a big difference going from rolling your sleeves up and doing every single thing yourself through to managing a, a very small team directly through to managing leaders. And that transition has taken place in tech, in product, in risk, in certainly in operations and in marketing as well. So it's it's across the business that that um, transition has taken place over
0: the last 18 months. Fascinating insight. Last question to wrap this up. Five years' time, let's fast forward the clocks, looking back, what will success look like over those five years and, and, and what do you think are the big hurdles to jump over for Athena?
1: I think we are looking to have, you know, 100,000 Australian families move their home loan uh, to Athena for them to have paid down their home loan faster and saved a bundle in the process shifting some of conventions that are very predatory on consumers into something that is much more authentically delivering value back to a borrower, and then doing so in a way where we're showing that you can deliver exceptional quality through efficient digital processes. You can The funding models don't have to be as centric on some of those legacy banks. So it's quite a transformation that we're actually aiming to achieve, and hopefully much of that is infectious of forcing others to move much faster to resolve some of these pain points in the market as well. So I think we're both excited at the idea of building a, a large scale exciting business here, but also doing so in a way where we're really thinking about the, the purpose and, and outcomes we're trying to achieve. And maybe something you haven't mentioned, I think one of the things we're really looking to do to scale that is, you know, is we're embracing the B Corp movement here. We're in the process of applying for that certification where you know, we've embedded that back into our company constitution. So we are thinking from that balanced scorecard, not only of shareholder outcomes, but what does that mean for team, for community, environment, um, all those other components. And so I think that's the really interesting challenge that a lot of startups start with that general intent, sort of don't be evil, but at some stage, given all the complexities of running complex businesses, it's easy to lose sight of what that magical look like. And so I think trying to really ground back into institutionalising those um, as we scale up so that we're not losing sight of that original vision, mission and excitement of what Athena's trying to do in homelands. Yeah,
2: we're, we're purpose driven and we want to save Aussies money and we want to have fun along the way. And we built this not to flip, we built this to really make a make an impact on on the business. Biggest challenges, Nathan, I would say there's just so many opportunities that come our way. The challenge is actually focus. We know we can do what we do really well and scale it out, but we do get a lot of opportunities come our way. And and so I think staying focused on the main game is probably
0: our, our, our biggest challenge over the next five years. Michael, Nathan, lived up to every ounce of expectation. Thanks for your time. That was wonderful. Great to chat. Thanks Thank for having you. us.